Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 72 of the Summit for Wellness podcast. I am your host, Brian Carroll, and today we have Tara Hunkin joining us to talk about neurodevelopmental disorders in children, especially ADD and ADHD. The rates at which kids are being diagnosed with these conditions has increased dramatically over the years, so we will be talking about why the rates have increased, what to do to support your child who may have these challenges, signs and symptoms to be aware of, and quite a bit of information to provide the best care for these children. Before we dive into this episode, did you know it is estimated that 87% of people do not consume the daily recommended values in their diets? These recommended values are the bare minimum numbers for avoiding severe nutritional deficiencies such as scurvy. But this is why I have been using Athletic Greens every single day. It is made from 75 whole food ingredients, so you get way more nutrients than just the recommended minimums. Plus, these nutrients are coming from how nature intended, so your body absorbs them much better than it does from a pill. To learn more, go to summitforwellness.com greens. Now, let's dive into my conversation with Tara Hunkin. Tara Hunkin is a nutritional therapy practitioner, certified GAPS practitioner, restorative wellness practitioner, mother and founder of My Child Will Thrive, and the host of the Autism, ADHD, and SPD Summit. She is passionate about helping parents like you because she has been in your shoes. Doctor visits left her with more questions than answers, and she soon realized that it was up to her to figure out how to get her daughter the help she needed. Thank you for coming on to the show, Tara. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate you having me here today. Of course. And uh, we talked a little bit before we started recording here, but a lot of your passion uh, for ADD, ADHD, anxiety, and autism comes from stuff that you were doing with your daughter or you learned from your daughter. So can you talk a little bit about um, your daughter and then how that led into your background? Absolutely. So as you said, I, I didn't start out in the world of uh, nutritional therapy or functional neurology or, or any of these things. I started out in the, I had a background in finance, but when I had my daughter um, 15 years ago, we ended up um, noticing very early on that she was having um, what we felt were developmental delays. They, they were relatively pronounced uh, for her. So it wasn't that we weren't getting um, as much action out of our our family physician team, but it was more that um, there was a, a, there's typically is a wait and see approach when it comes to developmental issues. And uh, when you do that, you lose a lot of opportunities or the best opportunities as as things go by. But over time, um, we, as, as you mentioned in the interest, I, I, we were getting, had more, more questions than answers every time we went to speak to someone, whether it be her GP, um, eventually a pediatrician, um, eventually a developmental pediatrician, a specialist, or her occupational therapist, her speech therapist, because we, we were doing all those things that are t- traditionally prescribed when we have a child with a speech delay, uh, gross motor delays or fine motor delays. So, uh, but we were seeing more than just that going on with her and uh, wanted to do more. But because we weren't getting um, any other options outside of the ones I just listed there, uh, we were getting increasingly frustrated. So I started to dive into the research um, as much as I could to find something um, for her other than uh, just those particular interventions, which were helping, but they weren't, um, she was falling further and further behind. So she wasn't, we weren't making up any lost ground. We just weren't losing as much ground as, as we were gaining at the time. Um, take a couple steps further and, you know, the internet wasn't what it is today in terms of the information that's out there. And one of the challenges is for parents is when you don't have a diagnosis yet, or your diagnosis maybe doesn't, you don't think fits everything that you're, you have, um, your child might be presenting. And that was the case for my child because 
even though she'd been assessed for many things like autism and, um, and others, she wasn't fitting all of the criteria for each of the diagnoses that, that um, they were investigating. Um, and the only diagnosis we got was dyspraxia, which for those of you who aren't familiar is a, a gross motor and fine motor coordination uh, disorder. And it, so I wasn't finding a lot of information until I stumbled across uh, Dr. Natasha Campbell Ride's book, um, The Gut and Psychology Syndrome, because dyspraxia was one of the diagnoses that she had in her subtitle. So that started me on a very long <laughs> journey, which ended me up where we are today, um, working and helping parents uh, find the treatments and therapies they need for their particular child. Um, through things like diet and um, other uh, diet and and other types of biomedical uh, supports and uh, things like neuro rehab that functional neurology brings to the table as well. So you mentioned when you started looking into this information, the internet wasn't like it is now where we have access to so much information. So uh, how like, how do you know where to start to try to figure out what's the best route for your child when you're looking into this type of information? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question because, um, as you know, it's, it's, it is really difficult to, um, to search. Like if you're going to go to the old Dr. Google, as many of us do, um, which can be like, is incredibly helpful as well as can be very distracting at the same time. Um, you know, we, I advise parents to always look at the symptoms, obviously, to try and find the root cause, but sometimes it's difficult to find that information without a diagnosis. So what you need, so today, I mean, fortunately, there are lots of um, different resources out there that are available aside from my own. Um, there are a number of websites that talk about um, uh, things, for example, in sensory processing disorder, uh, where a lot of children these days uh, in parents that don't necessarily have a diagnosis, but they have a child that cannot stand to put their socks on in the morning because the seams in the socks drive them insane. And it's like, it's the most painful thing on earth. So there, there are resources like that out there right now. Um, but you do have to sort of dig deeper than just a diagnosis start talking to friends and family and um, and teachers and practitioners that are out there and asking questions of them where they might send you locally because locally is always best to get started but then online um, it's it's taking a stab in the dark and looking at different diagnoses that you think might fit your child and then not worrying about whether or not they have that diagnosis, but looking at the symptoms that they're talking about associated with them and seeing what things can actually help that particular diagnosis and therefore those symptoms as well. So we know that there's been a pretty big increase in neurodevelopmental disorders over the past a uh, couple decades. Can you dive into the numbers of how likely it is that a child will have some form of neurodevelopmental disorder? Yeah. I mean, when you look at the stats, they come out, the numbers come out differently depending on where you get them from. So it is, it is tricky, but I think the most important thing that um, we as a society have to, to, to recognize is that the rates are um, increasing rapidly and um and it's it has a huge impact and from a socioeconomic standpoint not just on an individual child standpoint which is it's from a parent's perspective is is heart-wrenching and so difficult to see your child suffer this way but the latest data from the cdc um the the report that came out in 2018 but it was looking at 2014 data data had the rate of autism at 1 in 59 and that was a 15% increase over um, the report from two years prior to that. So that's looking at four-year-old data to come out with that report. So that just gives us an in indication of what we're seeing now. And that's just autism. Um, ADHD um, of children of ages four to 17, um, there are reports of about 11% of children are, are now showing signs of ADHD from a, that's a two, 2016 report. And, um, that's up uh, substantially from the, the, the 11% from the, um, the, the, sorry, sorry, it's up, uh, 
substantially from the 2003 report that's had it at um, 7.8%. So the those rates are going up. And, and, and what's even more concerning is that just because your child has one diagnosis, there's a lot of comorbidity in neurodevelopmental disorders. So um, when that same report came out, they, they, they noticed that 64% of those kids that were diagnosed with ADHD also had other um, neurobehavioral disorders, um, such as um, 52% had some kind of a behavioral issue. 33% of those kids also had anxiety. 17% of the kids had depression. Um, 14% of the kids that had ADHD also had autism. And um, 1% had Tourette's. And that's just one report that I've seen. I've seen other reports from um, uh, the... Uh, I believe it was the World Health Organization's report that came out, I think a year and a half ago, was noting that we had one in 14 children now with a neurodevelopmental disorder. So wow. no matter how you look at it, and then you have researchers like um, Stephanie Senna from, an, um, from uh, MIT, and she's predicting that we've, we're going to have a rate of autism if it continues on the same trend of uh, one in two boys. Uh, it, very shortly. And that is frightening from on many, many levels. Um, and then of course, begs the question, why? Why are we seeing? This? Are boys more likely to get autism than girls? Yeah. So it, boys are four times right now, four times more likely than girls to get autism. And again, that always at, uh, you know, begs the question around the genetic aspects of it. And I don't think we have a clear cut answer on why we're seeing that. Um, yeah, so, but, but we do know that the boys do have, and there, there's also a diagnosis aspect of that. So a lot of people are arguing that these rates are going up because the diagnosis, the diagnostic criteria is changing. So they're catching more diagnoses. That may be true to some extent, but the reality is, is that, um, as I mentioned with my own daughter, she has a, a number of significant challenges she had to, to overcome and she was just off the diagnostic criteria. So we also have a whole onslaught of children that aren't being captured within that diagnostic criteria that are having challenges as well. And it doesn't really, even if the diagnostic criteria is changed and we have better identification, it really doesn't account for the rate of change that we're seeing. And um, neither does obviously genetics because genetics are, are genetic makeup is not changing over time. The only thing that's changing is our environment. So we obviously need to be looking at the environment that our children are um, growing up in and being conceived in and, and everything else and how that's really impacting their health and the, therefore expressing in neurodevelopmental disorders as a whole. Is there a common age range where um, most of the diagnoses are found or is it very individual? Yeah. Well, I, I'd say that it is individual, mostly because um, it, certain certain of the diagnoses like autism, although kids are being diagnosed a lot earlier, typically the severity is more, they're being diagnosed earlier. Um, the process to diagnose um, and the types of testing, sometimes it's really hard to be definitive in a diagnosis early on. So when I say early on, I'm saying ages two to five. Part of the challenge is right now too, we do not have enough people that are trained appropriately to diagnose um, uh, children with uh, things like autism. Um, and in terms of um, ADHD, yes, that some of the, sometimes the diagnosis comes really early. I think part of the challenge is, is that um, again, uh, depending on where you live and what system, the medical system you're in and your access to these types of things, um, one, you may not be able to get in for a diagnosis. Two, they may not recommend you going through that process yet. And a lot of kids don't actually start that process of being diagnosed until they are in the school system. And then that can take um, a fair amount of time as well, which is why we always say don't wait for it. Diagnosis are great to have because um, they're very helpful from a um, insurance standpoint or a public funding for certain ser services and supports. 
they are also important sometimes for, for people for to accept what's going on with their child. So they, they sometimes need that in order to really start moving forward. But in terms of um, identifying symptoms that you can, underlying causes and symptoms that you can address early on, I always encourage parents to go with their gut if they feel that there's something not right um, and they feel that their child is struggling in, in any way, shape or form, or they're missing their milestones, or they are, just don't feel that they are developing typically, that there's no there's no harm in looking at um, their underlying health and environment and uh, taking steps to intervene immediately, whether they have a diagnosis or not. That was one of the questions I was going to ask is, as a parent, um, how do you differentiate between uh, these symptoms being an issue or just your child trying to grow up and figure out their place in the world. So, uh, um, you know, whether they're acting out or just not paying attention to you or whatever it is. So is there an easy way to be able to differentiate that, especially if it's your first child? Yeah, that's a really great question because as a parent of a first child, when we were going through this, um, you don't know because you don't have that benchmark and you don't have that experience. I do believe very, very strongly, though, in um, parents' instincts as to what's going on. Um, so if you are instinctually feeling that there's a, there is an issue there and that you can sort of see the trajectory that your child is taking and where this may become a problem in terms of how they're going to interact in the world as they go on, that would be one one way to, to decide when to, to do things. The other thing is looking at their underlying health. So if we go back and focus on the health of the child, so are they um, are they sleeping well? Um, do they do they have um, challenges with textures and types of foods? And they're very picky in their eating style. Do they have digestive distress on an ongoing basis? Are they always getting sick? Or do they seem to actually never get sick, which is also a, a red flag? So when we start to look at those underlying health issues um, and just look at those first, uh, then and and then also one of the things that I'm I'm very, very adamant about is that parents get a proper functional neurological assessment of their child because one it's non-invasive and it's um and it's somewhere where we can check to see is that brain developing the way it's supposed to be developing and um one of the things that we'll do during that functional neurological assessment is to do um, a check their primitive reflexes and these are reflexes that are um every every Buddy is born with, or they should be born with. They they check them when the kids are born. Do they have? You're familiar with things like the um, Babinski reflex, um, uh, you know, on the the hand and the feet, the grasp, the Moro reflex, the startle one, the seeing if the baby startles. And these are all reflexes babies have, um, either to help them in the birthing process or it's survival instincts um, to help them survive in those early months of life. Ultimately, those reflexes get integrated, what they call integrated, and they morph into postural reflexes, and those have other purposes, and that triggers further brain development higher up in the brain from the brainstem than going further up into the brain. And um, if those reflexes aren't integrated appropriately, you won't get that further development, and you'll start to see some milestones that might be missed. Like, did they not crawl um, until late or they didn't crawl at all? Some kids skip developmental processes as well. We think they're really advanced, but they're actually skipping things they should be doing. So having someone who really knows their, their, how that brain develops, how those, what those milestones should look like can be a really good indicator um, of whether or not what you're seeing is just a personality trait or is um, a brain development um, challenge. And do you recommend that assessment for every child? I actually believe that primitive reflexes at a minimum should be part of our, 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 our wellness checks with our kids. And I wish they were. I know they are. Like I said, they do them early. But very few um, uh, 
general practitioners in the mainstream medical world and um, even developmental uh, like pediatricians will do a primitive reflex to check later on to see if they've been integrated or not. But um, fortunately, we do have uh, functional neurologists that are out there that are born out of the chiropractic world. Um, and they do a full functional neural assessment and they'll do more than that. They won't more than, than primitive reflexes, but I do wish that someday, um, the, a primitive, um, reflex integration test at a minimum would be done at, at, you know, the standard wellness checks when kids go in at different points in time. And those, just so you know, those, those reflexes should be integrated by, um, somewhere between 12 and 18 months. Uh, it's, it's it, depending on the reflex. Uh, so they, it's fairly early on. So if we still seeing them later on, it's something one, we can actually do something about, we as parents can actually do the work with our children ourselves. It doesn't necessarily have to cost anything once you know what the exercises are to rehab those reflexes and, and get them to integrate. You can do them at home. They're quite simple. Um, you often find developmental um, or uh, pediatric occupational therapists that that are very well versed on this as well and, and do that work. But the importance of that work, I think, is not the weighting on it isn't as um, as high as it should be. Is there a database of some sort where people can go and find a practitioner near them that does this type of work? Absolutely. So there's, there's a couple. Um, so first of all, like it said, you can ask if you already have an OT that you're working with, they may already be doing this, but you might, might not know what they're doing. So definitely ask them about primitive reflex integration and have they tested their primitive reflexes. So occupational pediatric occupational therapists um, have some training in this as well. But then beyond that, um, there's a couple different, uh, one would be um, IAFNR, so the International Association of Functional Neuro Neurology and Rehabilitation. They have a member directory for um, their, the people that have been through their programs and um, basically they are, they have a uh, chiropractic neurology diplomat um, designation and, and training. And also the Carrick Institute, um, which was where functional neurology was originally um, uh, came out of, and they have a directory as well. And uh, in addition to that, there are other types of um, movement therapists, um, one that comes uh, rhythmic movement therapists, and I can give you the, I'll give you the links to these, um, Brian, and um, that also look at pre primitive reflex integration and even beyond that as well. So th th there are actually more and more resources of that sort, but then there's also books that are great that are out there that parents can look to um, like Dr. Robert Miller's uh, disconnected kids book. He actually walks through the primitive reflexes and how to integrate them as well. And we'll have all of those links in the show notes at summitforwellness.com slash 72. So if people want to find those links, that's where they will be. Okay, so the big elephant in the room, and you briefly touched on it earlier, was what's causing these neurodevelopmental disorders? Is there any ideas of what might be leading up to these increases? Yeah, I, I mean, it is a big question. And it's funny, it's one that I'm asked almost every time I get in an Uber on the way to a conference and someone asks me, what do you do? And why is this happening? Um, it, I mean, as, as like you said, I touched on it before, we're having a very rapid increase in the rates of these challenges. Um, the only thing we can really logically look to is um, environmental factors. So when we talk about that, um, we, we can talk about generationally how has our the environment that we are exposed to every day as parents and then obviously having these children um, and the children themselves, how has that environment changed so drastically that it's impacting the health of our children? And uh, I think that what we're seeing is, is uh parents that have been exposed to, we're, we're a few generations into a lot of changes. I mean, we're for in the last hundred years, we're talking about a big change for our food system in terms of more recently, we're seeing more and more chemicals being used in our environment and also then getting into our food as well that we know are having a, an impact. And there's lots of research into that now. And, um, and then we're also, a lot of other things have changed in terms of our, our children's environment 
Um, we have also in the last, I don't know, 40 years at least been more and more, everybody's disinfecting everything. So the microbiome exposure um, changes. Um, we're using a lot more antibiotics. I think the the impact on the, um, the microbiome uh, from the use of antibiotics has also changed things. And, um, and we're also exposed to a lot more um, um, EMS, the electromagnetic frequencies um, in the world that we were never exposed to before. And I don't think anybody can tell you for sure um, the extent that that impacts us, but we're seeing that people are, are definitely impacted by being um, bombarded by so much, um, so many different EMFs all the time. So on the same spectrum as EMFs, uh, you can see a lot of parents now give their kids uh, screens of some sort. You see like two-year-olds with iPads and they're learning on that instead of learning with their hands. Um, do you think that plays a role as well? For sure. It's it's funny. I remember when I when I first had my daughter and um, I think something that was really big when she was born was baby Einstein videos. And I don't think they're around anymore, but... Um, uh, it was a big deal back then because the woman who started this, it was just, it was just, um, videos, uh, with puppets. And, um, so videos with puppets and Mozart, uh, playing because I, there had been some studies that had said that, um, you know, like the baby and it's true. There are lots of studies about how music impacts the brain. And that is very, very true. Nobody ever said that it would be like, you know, a video with puppets with Mozart was going to be helpful to the child. But, um, but, you know, as we do as parents, we're like, this is awesome. We have something to, you know, a, a babysitter for the, for the kids to keep their attention for a few minutes so we can get things done. So I am completely um, uh, sympathetic to the plight of all parents that anytime a piece of technology or something or a, a trick or tool or toy, like we used to call the, um, uh, the, what's called the exercisers, the, which are the little round things that you put your baby in. Um, uh, we used to call it the circle of neglect. It was so you could put your child down and, uh, and walk away cause they'd be entertained by the things around them. Um, but they, you know, couldn't move appropriately cause they were trapped. Um, and we knew they were safe at least, but, but like you said, um, the brain develops through experience. So it, it develops through sensory. It develops from them being crawling on the ground and everything else. And I used to think that it was the whole TV, don't let your kids in front of the TV um, for long because we didn't want them sitting. And it was more about exercise and cardiovascular health and everything else. And it's actually really about brain development. So getting outside in sunshine, obviously, we know that's also great for vitamin D and, and all that. But But being outside in the real world and touching and feeling and experiencing those things is essential to brain development. So as soon as we, we um, sort of compartmentalize them and sit them in front of a screen for too long or um, in an exercise as I did in front of a TV with some puppets and some music, um, you're, you're not giving them everything they need to give. Well, you're not giving their sensory system what it needs to then um, help the brain take the next steps in terms of the development. So that is another perfect example of, of how things that we can do differently that's really simple um, uh, to, to make sure that our, our kids' brains are developing appropriately as they, as they age. Awesome. Well, we know that um, a lot of kids that are diagnosed with ADD, ADHD, they're usually prescribed medications. And often these medications are uh, stimulant type of medications. Um, so are there pros and cons for that type of medication? And uh, can you touch on alternatives to that as well? Yeah. So I mean, medication is a really touchy subject um, in terms of for parents and um, and educators and everything else. So it's a really tough decision to decide whether or not to put your child on medication. And um, one thing that med medication, the stimulant medications in particular, are are um, are good for is actually if they work, your child does have ADHD. It's a, it's a quick diagnostic tool for some people because if they work, it's that part of their, their system that it, it truly is ADHD. So it's a, it, it's, I'm not saying that that people should use it for that, but it is 
a sign that you're, you know, know that that's a problem for the child. So that being said, the challenge is, is that the, the studies that are coming out about um, the longer term studies that are coming out around these stimulant medications and the kids giving them, especially the age we're seeing them being given them at younger and younger ages is that it is interfering with brain development. And so we could be giving them something that yes, um, helps them and, and it doesn't help all kids. Um, and not just because they're, they, they don't have ADHD, but the, it, the side effects sometimes for, for some kids, it, it really detracts from the benefits, but you will, you will hear lots of impassioned pleas by both parents and children who, who were put on medication saying that, that it really helped them, um, focus and, and get things together. The problem is, is that we don't want to be doing something that potentially has longer, long-term benefits that we can't um, erase. And then, uh, sorry, long-term, long-term negatives that we can't erase. And then we also um, know that unfortunately with these medications, especially when they're started so young with some of these kids, we're, we're seeing kids as young as four and five being put on these medications when they're on these medications so young, they, the dosage, they become, um, uh, they, they have to increase the dosage over time in order for the effectiveness to stay steady, um, becomes because they become more and more tolerant to them, I guess is the, I think there's a better word for that, but, but so what ends up happening is there is a point at time where they almost, what you could say, age out of the medication where the medication won't be effective anymore. And, um, so then the question is, then what do you do? So now you're an adult and the, the ADHD medications aren't working anymore. And you're taking a, a uh, you know, an, un, a very unsustainable higher, higher dose that doesn't work anymore. Um, coming off those meds is very difficult and, um, has to be very carefully monitored and because it can have uh, huge impacts. And so that's why looking for alternatives, even if you find that ADHD medication helps your child initially, it is always advisable, in my opinion, to look to other things um, to find out um, why and what your child's brain needs um, in order to, to correct it. So that being said, what can you do? So again, we go back to looking at the brain development itself. So getting that functional neural assessment and looking at if there's things like primitive reflex integration and other things that need to be done. Um, uh, other types of neuro rehab, there's lots of those out there. Um, neurofeedback therapy has been shown to be as if not more effective than medication. Um, the unfortunate downside of that is it is expensive to do. Um, and time consuming. However, it, um, the, the benefits of it are sticky. So, so if you, if your child participates in a, a neurofeedback, um, they will take those benefits uh, moving forward. It doesn't, it doesn't slide backwards. A diet is a huge intervention. A lot of times those symptoms that they're showing are actually reactions to the foods they are eating. So, um, identifying that working with a nutritionist that's, uh, knows a lot about those things, um, to identify the foods that may be causing the problems, or it could be a microbiome imbalance, again, that's causing um, a biochemical reaction that's um, causing your child to be uh, have certain behaviors, having trouble focusing. Um, and as adults, I think we know that we all have some of these, we, and the people start joking as they get older that they have adult ADHD or um, ADD because they can't focus anymore, brain fog. It's the same things that cause those in adults that that can be causing it in the children as well. So there's lots of other things that can be investigated um, outside of medication. But again, there's no shame. I I never uh, I I understand the plight of parents that are really trying to do the best for their children. So um, there is no judgment in whatever they choose. And a lot of times when they're making the decision for medication or not, they don't know of other options either. So exactly. Yeah. That's, and that's and that's, know. yeah, well, that, and that's, that's the thing is that we, we can't beat ourselves up about what we didn't know. If I did, if I did that, I, I, uh, I, I, like I said, I put my kid in the, the, uh, the circle of neglect. I put it in front of a video of a puppet playing Mozart. That was the right thing to do. I mean, I made a million mistakes along the way. And uh, why I'm doing what I'm doing these days is, is really to help other parents make 
um, not make the mistakes that I made and, and hopefully benefit from um, what we went through. So you're a GAPS practitioner as well. So you're definitely mm-hmm. looking at the gut and how that um, is associated with our psychology. Uh, so do you notice that a lot of kids have digestive distress? And if so, is that playing a big role in uh, their disorders? Uh, absolutely. So um, in particular, I'd say in all these populations, so it's it's, it's not... Um, more one than another, but but uh, parents of children with autism, almost every child has a digestive uh, issue. Um, chronic constipation is is a real problem. A lot of parents uh, report their children do what you know we call posturing, where they're literally leaning over furniture to put pressure on their abdomen in order to relieve the dis- the discomfort that they're experiencing. Because a lot of these kids are nonverbal as well. Um, if you can imagine not being able to express um, the discomfort, um, how that's going to come out in other behavior as well, and and that often happens for young children too that might have um, signs and symptoms of ADHD. They may be it may be a behaviorally related uh, to what's going on in their guts as well. And what what happens is when, as as you know, as a nutrition therapy practitioner too, is when we don't break down, for example, the proteins um, that uh, we are our children are ingesting. They're also then not breaking those down into the components and being able to um, create the neurotransmitters that are essential for regulating um, uh, and balancing out those uh, emotions. And um, you know, in terms of which ones are excitatory versus um, uh, suppressive. So these are the things that we, um, we want to look at is we want to go back down to the basics of making sure they're getting great nutrition. They're able to digest their food, um, and, uh, and ensuring they don't have this digestive distress that ends up, um, causing other symptoms as well. Uh, have you heard of amino acid therapy at all? Yeah. And if so, do you use it in your practice? Yeah, I so I have um, we trial things from time to time, uh, but and I certainly did um, early on with my daughter too. Uh, Trudy Scott is a fabulous uh, practitioner of this, and I refer people to the work that she does in amino acid therapy. She was uh, she mentored under uh, Julia Ross as well, and um, yes, a lot of parents find this can be incredibly helpful as they figure out what the underlying root cause is. So if you find that amino acid therapy is working for your child in terms of like, for example, if you're using GABA to help them calm themselves down, um, we now, then, then you know that we, we might be dealing with, um, you know, it could be the digestive process that we're not getting those components to make GABA. But we also know too, as Dr. Karazian teaches that Um, there's a good chance that that calming effect happens. We have a leaky blood brain barrier because, um, for example, GABA amino acid is a very large molecule and it won't, it shouldn't go through a tight junction like the, the blood brain barrier. Um, but if it is helping and he feels if it's calming, um, then it is, uh, we, you are likely dealing with a, a leaky blood brain barrier, which gives you also an indication of, of what else might be impacting that brain um, that shouldn't be and um, gives you something to a clue to go on and where to work with your child. Hmm. Yeah, good information there. We had uh, someone on the podcast a few months ago talking about amino acid therapy. So I can definitely see how it can play a role in all this stuff as well. Absolutely. Um, so other than amino acids, are there other common uh, nutritional deficiencies that you typically see in kids? Yes. So um, there, uh, there's, there's quite a few, <laughs> but, but um, so uh, magnesium would be one that we see quite a bit. And that's one of the things like when you, you have a child with ADHD, uh, magnesium tends to be a calming nutrient. So it's actually a great way to, to trial, again, um, getting more magnesium in their diet or um, having them take Epsom salt baths because magnesium actually is very um, difficult sometimes uh, in terms of absorption in the gut if you have gut issues as well and, and cleaving the minerals off through digestion. So if you're dealing with digestive stress, getting the magnesium in other ways, uh, so topically through absorption is, is a great way to do that as well. Um, 
We often see um, zinc deficiency and iron deficiency in, in 80, children with ADHD, um, omega-3 fatty acid deficiencies. Um, so there, there's quite a long list um, and selenium and um, trying to think of the other ones that I, I talk about quite a bit, but there are, there are quite a few. And, and that goes back to what you asked about, about the digestive system. You know, some of the kids aren't ingesting enough of these. We're not eating enough in our diets, but often it's just the digestive um, uh, process not being uh, robust enough and, and not breaking down all the foods that they're eating uh, appropriately so that they can be absorbed and, and, and then utilized in the body. So anytime you try to give children a dietary uh, protocol, children can be very stubborn when it comes <laughs> to food, especially if they grew up eating a lot of sugary type of processed foods. So how do you um, get them to make changes so that it can benefit uh, some of these disorders and challenges? Yeah, it's tough. So, I mean, if, if I was to say anything else, I'd be lying. Um, it's not easy. There's a lot of different ways you can go about doing it. And I advise people to figure out what works best for them. But um, there's the old Band-Aid approach. So the first thing I will say is that everybody in the family needs to make the same changes. I think it's very, very difficult to be successful long term if you have one child in the house that's eating a certain way and everybody else is eating a different way. So um, now that being said, obviously, if they have um, a food intolerance to something that's a very healthy food and they're keeping it, we're keeping it out of their diet for a time being, I'm not saying everybody else needs to keep it out of their diet. But when I'm saying that um, we want to remove processed foods from their, their diet, it's better for everybody in the household anyway. So it's something that is healthy as a family and you need to model the behavior for your child um, that you want them to take. If mom and dad, brother, sister, or even just brother, sister are eating um, highly processed foods and all the things that this child used to love, um, they will not understand and get why they have to make that change. Um, a lot of the kids also have to deal with sensory issues and that, that is a big challenge for parents, um, as well. So sometimes you need to work with a therapist to work on that. But again, if you're working on some of the neuro rehab work to deal with the sensory, um, issues, those things can go away over time as well and, um, help you make the dietary changes you need. But the other, the other way of going about it. So there's, um, one, we all need to be taking part in it in some way, shape, or form to model that behavior. You need to get rid of everything in the house that would be a deterrent from them making the change. And then the next thing is you kind of have to decide whether or not you're going to take the approach of squeezing out the bad and uh, by bringing in more good. So just gradually adding in more and more things you want them to eat that crowds out the things you don't want them to eat. And finding substitutions, because usually the, the first step we ask parents to do is go on a gluten-free, casein-free diet, and ideally a gluten-free, dairy-free diet. But um, there is evidence around um, uh, gluten and casein proteins being uh, uh, a challenge. And we see a lot of parents see great results just by removing those two types of proteins from their child's diet. So um, we try to make it simple that way so they start there. Um, and... Uh, so, so when you're, when you're doing that, you can, you can crowd them out and you can also just start replacing the gluten-free, the, you know, the regular, whatever they like mac and cheese with a gluten-free dairy-free version and seeing if that works. What I like to do, and I did with my kids, is I didn't try to substitute anything. I just, I just changed. So, because the, with the, what I find typically is that when you try to do that, those types of switching out, at least again, in my experience is that they're, they don't taste the same as they did before. And they notice that right away. So it's a lot easier to actually just change them to something else entirely than it is to change, uh, try to substitute something that um, is going to taste different what they're, than, the, than what they're used to when they think they're getting the same thing. So there's those approaches. And then the other one is the, you know, the Band-Aid approach, which I did with my family, um, which can be very helpful. And it can be very, very, um, and it worked really well for my family. We, we made a proclamation and we had a great big party with all the things the kids thought that they really loved. 
um, the day before. And then we said, and we're done with that. And it all went away. And we just started fresh for the whole family all at once. And um, that's, you know, what I call the Band-Aid approach. And you just pull off that Band-Aid and then you dig in and you go uh, full on. And that's when we, when we did the GAPS diet, that's what we did. Um, I don't always advise that. It really just depends on the mindset of the parents and the kids and where your kid's at and what you're dealing with. So every situation is really different. And if your child is middle school or high school, <laughs> like at that age where they're old enough to fight back and make decisions, oh yeah, how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a tough one. So I'm dealing with that now because I have a middle schooler and a high schooler and they are at that point. Now, fortunately, we made interventions um, quite a bit before that. So a lot of education has gone into it, but absolutely your kids are going to go out. They're going to make changes. You're not going to be able to control their environment anymore. Ideally, you want to get to it way before that. So at this point, it becomes an education. And um, what the the most important thing you can do or the best thing you can do for your child is get them to understand how certain things make their bodies feel and allows them to cope with their day. Because once they realize that, they start to self-moderate um, or self like they make those choices for themselves. Not all the time. They are kids. They're going to make mistakes. But when they recognize and then acknowledge um, that something doesn't make them feel good or they realize that they couldn't control their emotions and maybe it was um, what they ate that day, it's a lot easier to get them to start making good decisions for themselves and um, most of the time as opposed to not at all. So that that's what we do now as I, cause I, I know I can't control the, the, the environment all the time anymore. So I need to know that they're going to try to find a way to make good choices on their own. Yeah. Like you said, the best thing you can do is educate them because they get to a point at some point where they think they know everything and they go to their friends' houses and eat whatever they want. And yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. Well, and I try, I try hard I don't, I'm not always successful to not go. I told you so <laughs> when they come <laughs> home and they're doubled over in pain because someone decided to overindulge. And even for, for, for us, it being even in what I would call gluten-free junk. So, you know, even if they, they, they're not, you know, completely um, going off, off book, but um, they start to eat a lot of processed food. They notice a difference pretty quickly or they go out to eat somewhere and um, there's some cross contamination or something. Uh, we are at a point now where they, they recognize um, how they feel after they don't eat the way they um, should be eating for themselves based on their, their circumstances. And um, it's helpful. It's not perfect, but it's better than the alternative. All right. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share about, um, you know, working with people that have some kind of neurodevelopment uh, disorder and how to be able to support them? Yeah, I think I think the best thing that parents can do for themselves is cut themselves a lot of slack. It's not easy. You are not going to get it right on the first go. But the one thing I do tell everybody um, to do, and it's not something that we love doing, but is documenting everything. And uh, when I say everything, I mean everything. And this is because it, it gives you the best clues on how to get to the right solution for your child the fastest. Um, and that is, uh, so watching those trends and documenting everything, um, I advise people to keep a very detailed medical history. You're typically going in for a lot of appointments, a lot of different places, and every place has a different intake. Um, I recommend everybody keeps copies of any intake form they fill out. I have a master document that I have available to people and they then can take that with them. So they make sure that they give the right information to their practitioner every time because we forget over time if we haven't written it down and then tracking their food, mood, sleep and poop and, and looking for trends in that um, is another key um, tool for yourself, for the practitioners, the practitioners you work with, I, I guarantee will love you if you bring in lots of good detailed records. Um, and, uh, and then also understanding why you're taking on any particular treatment or therapy. Um, we need to know why we're doing something, what to expect as an outcome, when we should be reviewing what we're doing. Um, so we set our expectations and we um, understand why we're doing something so that we have the motivation to keep going when it gets tough. So um, it, it really isn't an easy path, but it's doable. And 
fortunately, there's more and more resources out there to help you along the way. Awesome. At this point, usually I ask people uh, what their morning routine is to help um, prepare them to be at their best health possible. Uh, but since you have a child that has challenges as well, and you're a parent, I would love to know what is your morning routine that prepares you to be able to deal with uh, the challenges from your children and to be able to support them the best that you can. So my morning routine, so the best morning routine, <laughs> I, I probably I don't always have the best morning routine. I'll tell you that. So that, again, it's about cutting yourself slack when you have kids that have a lot of stuff going on. But actually one of the best things you can do for yourself is to look after yourself when you have a child with a special need. Um, so when when you're when you have a child with special need, if you aren't looking after yourself, you're going to at some point have have a have some kind of a health challenge your own of your own, and and you won't be able to look after your child. So, um, I you know it's about planning the day in advance, especially with kids with special special needs, because um, that keeps our sanity intact. So knowing what you're going to feed them um, each day, and um, and and planning in advance um, for that. And, um, you know, trying to find um, five or 10 minutes before the day gets started to actually have a, a, an opportunity to um, take a moment for yourself and uh, do something you really like, I think is really important. I recently um, acquired uh, something that I'm, I'm very fond of. It's called a brain tap and it's, it has meditation um, uh, different audios that go with it, but it's also a... Um, uh, it has a visor and, and headphones, so it's a combination of listening, and it also has um, uh, uh, binaural beats and um, also some lights that go across. And it's it's all to stimulate the brain to into relaxation or meditation state. And I find it incredibly helpful to sort of take away the stress of the day um, even before it gets started. So either in the morning or in the evening, I like to do that as well. Awesome. Well, people can find you at mychildwillthrive.com and that they can find you on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as well. Can you tell people what they can find on your website? Yeah. So I um, regularly write about um, uh, all these things like we, we were discussing today from everything from primitive reflexes. You can find a great um, free resource on um, um, what the, all the primitive reflexes that we like to look at and 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 how when and how they integrate and the symptoms signs and symptoms that they haven't been integrated um, are there everything from that to all about the gaps diet um, the different nu nutrient deficiencies like we, we were we were briefly discussing today and um, obviously also resources outside of, of my child will thrive where you can find help um, that of the different types of practitioners that we were talking about. And then um, I, I too post my podcasts um, on there. So you can either listen or, or read depending on whether you like that one or the other. Awesome. And is the Autism ADHD and SPD Summit, is that available for people as well? It is actually. So on, in the, the, the menu header, you can see there's a summit link and um, you can go there and, and uh, it's, a, it's available right now for purchase. Um, and uh, we hope to do more of those in the future as well. Awesome. Thanks, Tara, for coming on and sharing uh, so much information about ADD, ADHD, and uh, neurodevelopment disorders. Uh, I know there's a lot of people that are dealing with kids that have something along those lines. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing so much valuable information with us. Uh, I appreciate your time and thanks for all you do with your podcast and to help everyone. Well, there you have it, folks. Tara brought on a lot of very valuable information, especially if you have a child that's suffering from any kind of neurodevelopmental disorder. So uh, I know she dropped a lot of different references and uh, talked about a lot of different links that you can check out. Uh, so we consolidated all that in the show notes. If you go to summitforwellness.com slash 72, then you can find the links to all of those resources right there. We've made it super simple for you. Also, if you are interested in her Autism, ADHD, and SPD Summit that uh, she had on a while ago, you can go to summitforwellness.com slash ADHD Summit to learn more about uh, all the videos and presentations that she has there. I think she has over 30 different recordings of uh, 
practitioners that she had interviewed for that summit. Okay, if you enjoyed this episode, have you left us a rating and review yet? If not, please go to your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and review. They do help to get this podcast more exposure and to get the name of Summit for Wellness out there further. So please take just 20 seconds to go and do that. Next episode, we are going to be talking about different regenerative medicine Uh, injections that you can get such as stem cells and PRP and how that can be beneficial in orthopedic injuries and discomfort. So here is a quick little snippet from that episode. We are here with Dr. Funk. Dr. Funk, can you talk to us a little bit about one unique thing that you really like or or are enjoying right now? Yeah, so as of this past year, (laughs) I am such an outlander addict. And when I say outlander addict, it's not just the TV series, but I am, I mean, head over heels in into the books. And I was telling Brian, you know, each book is about a thousand pages. And I am the biggest bookworm when it comes to reading the series. And my husband's like, I have, I have lost my wife to this book called Outlander. And um, anyway, so I love the series because it has strong female um, lead as well as a strong um, uh, guy, her husband. And then it's got medical herbalism in it. I've learned tons of herbs, tons of just medicine in general. And it's got war, it's got intrigue, like anything that you can ask for in a book, it's got in it. So I am ever grateful to Diana Gabaldon for writing such an awesome series. It's my favorite book series of all time. So I've never read or watched The Outlander. So what is better? Is the TV series better or is reading the book better? Oh, gosh. Like usual, it's the books. Of course. Of course. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But yeah, I mean, who has time to read a thousand page book? But I guess you sneak it in when you can. (laughs) (laughs) So Dr. Funk, can you tell us what we'll be learning about uh, in our interview together? Yeah, so we'll be learning about the different regenerative injection therapies that I do in practice. Um, Typically, they are perineural injection therapies, prolotherapy, uh, PRP, and stem cell therapy. We'll also learn about some of the conditions that they're indicated for, um, what are some of the risk factors, um, and yeah, who might be a good candidate for it, and, you know, what are the costs, for example. So those are all things we'll be talking about. Awesome. And what are some of your favorite foods or nutrients that you think every single person should be getting more of in their diet? Ooh, food wise. I love food. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I would have to say cilantro. I was teasing a friend about this the other day and she's like, you put cilantro in everything and it's a good detoxifier for God's sakes. And in Vietnamese food, you know, you actually, uh, I'm Vietnamese. So growing up, I mean, we use cilantro in, in pretty much everything. Um, but in, in terms of being more serious, in terms of nutrients, um, I would have to say, you know, Living stressful lives and pushing our bodies hard and fast and strong, um, I notice as I'm starting to age, um, I'm having to do more adrenal support. Um, and so, uh, you know, I normally take adrenal support and I recommend it for a lot of my patients. Um, but also, I would have to say the number one nutrient that I recommend for patients in general um, is magnesium. And so I also see a lot of um, chronic pain patients. I do medical cannabis authorizations. And so for a lot of them, you know, they, they, it's difficult for them to um, sleep. You know, they're having a lot of GI issues. So, yeah, I would say magnesium is a smooth muscle relaxer. It helps relax your, your brain, your gut health. So um, it's one of my favorite. It's one of the nutrients and supplements that I actually take. So, Do you have a favorite form of magnesium that you like? Yeah, so magnesium bisglycinate is very um, absorbable. You, um, I use a powder form. So for um, I'm not a big uh, pill pay, pill taker. So most of my supplements that I take are in a powderized form. Um, so I use the Designs for Health magnesium bisglycinate, and I love it. It definitely makes a big difference for me as well. And so um, that, and I would say electrolytes in general. Awesome. And what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? 
Ooh. Um, okay. So I mentioned it before, but sleep. <laughs> I love sleep. <laughs> um, I, I would, yeah, definitely have to say having good sleep. You know, I've never had issues with sleeping before in my life and, and listening to patients, you know, after 13 years of practice, I feel for those patients that, that are unable to sleep. Um, so for me, I really get my eight to nine hours of sleep. And so, um, that, um, and then I would say, uh, you know, getting good sunlight and like grounding yourself. So, you know, I've hiked up Sara Mountain barefoot. Um, I've pretty much in the last few years have changed over to, um, you know, zero lift uh, shoes. And it's been one of the best things that's ever happened to my foot because I've had bunions before and I've injected with prolotherapy, but I've actually improved um, the arches in my feet by switching over to like Vivo Barefoots, for example, um, are the companies that I use in zero. And um, yeah, so, so, you know, making sure that if you're at home, like take off those darn shoes and walk around barefoot, walk in the grass. Um, you know, to me, it's, it's one of the best feelings. And it reminds me of childhood, you know, not only that, but you know, there's energy that gets transferred when you're walking barefoot, you know, especially when you're out hiking. So I know that when I'm hiking barefoot versus hiking with shoes, I'm, there's so much more intent, right? The intention is there, like where my feet is hitting the ground and what I feel, all the nerve endings in my feet. Like it's it's pretty amazing, like the the drastic difference when I'm barefoot versus not. So yeah. Yeah, I've never I've never hiked barefoot, but I use minimal shoes. So I do allow yep. my foot to kind of wrap around yes. rocks and roots and everything, but my feet just aren't uh callous enough to go fully barefoot yet. So um Awesome. It sounds like we have a really good episode coming up and people can listen to that next week. As you can see, there's going to be a ton of information in this upcoming episode about regenerative medicine injections. So make sure you stay tuned for episode 73. Keep climbing to the peak of your health and we will see you next time.